Hello, and welcome to Every Plant Deserves a Podcast. I'm Stacey Hervella, and this is episode two, in which we'll be covering the cranberry, known botanically as Vaccinium macrocarpon. Vaccinium is the same genus as blueberries, bilberries, which you can kind of think of as European blueberries, and huckleberries. Now, I want to take a quick moment to talk about huckleberries. There are a lot of plants that are known as huckleberries, and huckleberry was commonly applied to blueberries in New England and parts of Appalachia. If you're in Western North America, the plant you know as huckleberry is Vaccinium membranaceum, which is essentially a Western version of the same Eastern blueberry that's sold in grocery stores. You'll notice it has a slightly sunken blossom end, In other words, that's the spot where the flower was attached to the fruit when it was still just an ovary. But that plant that's sold as a blueberry in the West, that's not huckleberry either. True huckleberries are a different but related genus, Galeucasia, which tends to have large, shiny fruits that are still edible, but each one contains 10 relatively large seeds. There's still yet another plant that's sometimes called huckleberry that's a tomato relative. But all of this is just to say, that this type of common name confusion is why we always use scientific names in Every Plant Deserves a Podcast, and that you can always visit our website, mypwcolorchoices.com, and click on podcasts for photos of the plant, see proper spelling of the plant names, and learn more about fascinating topics like what is a huckleberry actually. So back to cranberry and the genus Vaccinium. Another related species is lincolnberries, which similar to bilberries, are essentially the European version of cranberries. But the origin of the name Vaccinium itself is actually lost to time. The source I used to learn about the derivation of plant names simply says this about Vaccinium. A Latin name of great antiquity with no clear meaning. Various derivations have been suggested. So that's about as clear and helpful as mud and not going to give us any kind of meaningful revelations on the plant. Now, the macrocarpon part of the name, remember cranberry is Vaccinium macrocarpon, that's pretty easy to translate. It translates to big fruit. And the fruit of cranberries is indeed quite large, taken relative to the plant's size. It's not the biggest berry you're going to buy in the grocery store, but if you look at the size of a cranberry plant, you will see it is pretty large for the size of the plant itself. Now, I'll bet you didn't know this, the more colloquial name cranberry is actually a mistake. Settlers originally called it craneberry due to the resemblance of the flowers to the head of a crane bird. And if you go to our website and take a look at the flowers, you will almost certainly be able to sort of kind of see where that resemblance uh, is apparently from. Cranberry, or Vaccinium macrocarpum, is a member of the Aracaceae, also known as the Heath and Heather family. Now, those two plants may ring a bell for you, depending on where you live, but probably the most emblematic member of the family for most of us in North America is Rhododendron. Some other familiar members of the Aracaceae include Arbutus, Wintergreen, also known as Galteria, Mountain Laurel, also known as Kelmia, and our magnificent native tree, Sourwood, Oxydendrum arboreum. In botanical taxonomy, a genus's membership to a specific family is determined by its reproductive architecture. In other words, things related to the shape, arrangement, quality, and relationship of the flowers, stamens, pistils, and subsequently to its fruit type. Botanical family membership is not related to what a plant's needs are in terms of growing it. But in the case of the Aracaceae, we can generalize one cultural need that's pretty much universal to all of its members, and that's that these plants absolutely require acidic soil. That leads us to talking about what this plant looks like and where to find it in the wild. 
I think it's safe to say that the majority of Americans are familiar with the fruit itself of a cranberry. It's a small, shiny, lightweight red berry, often with some white streaks. However, if you were to see a cranberry plant, it's quite likely you wouldn't recognize it at all. In fact, you're unlikely to even see it because cranberry plants are ground covers. They grow to be just about one foot tall or thereabouts and can spread anywhere from one to three foot wide. So it's a true woody plant. So like we said in our first episode about hydrangea paniculata, if you cut a stem, it will show rings like a tree would. But those stems are very fine and kind of weak, so cranberry plants tend to trail and snake their way all over the ground. They are evergreens, and their neat, stiff, leathery little leaves remain visible all year round. In spring, the plant produces very distinctive flowers, with four starkly reflexed petals and a very prominent column of stamens and a single pistil in the center. That's where the resemblance to the crane comes in, as that pistil juts out so dramatically it does look a bit like a beak, and the petals reflex back, kind of forming a head. But here we are, cranberry. The flowers point directly downward and give a kind of nodding effect. They're quite unique in their own right and are substantially different at first glance than blueberry flowers, which I'm mentioning because remember, blueberry is the same species as cranberry, vaccinium. However, if you were to actually dissect a blueberry flower, the resemblance to the cranberry flowers would be immediately noticeable. It's just that the petals themselves are arranged differently. Cranberry flowers are most often pollinated by bees, so native bees and specifically bumblebees in the wilds, but honeybees are often used by commercial growers to ensure good pollination and fruit set. The berries start to develop in early summer and are green for most of the season. In autumn, the foliage turns a beautiful, brilliant red and nestled within those small leaves are the ripe cranberries themselves, by now that beautiful red color that we all recognize. Vaccinium macrocarpon is native exclusively to North America, so I'm guessing that many listeners could probably pretty easily visit a natural area near them and find a stand of native cranberries. They are found in the eastern half of Canada from Ontario eastward and in the U.S. from Minnesota to Maine and south through Tennessee and North Carolina. So a pretty big part of the northeastern United States and Canada. If you are in an area where they occur naturally, you shouldn't have too much trouble finding them because they do tend to form larger colonies. You're unlikely to find just a single lone cranberry plant in the middle of the woods somewhere. In the wild, cranberries are most often found in moist areas and are considered an obligate hydrophyte. In other words, they almost always occur in wetlands. So look for them at the edges of ponds, lakes, and bogs, any slow-moving, shallow body of water. They cannot grow in standing water. That's a myth that was actually created by agricultural practices. So let's back up a minute to the plant we've discussed so far. It's a foot tall, so growing essentially on the ground, and each berry is growing on a single stem. One stem, one berry. So when you think about the proposition of harvesting from this plant, you know it's going to be an absolute nightmare. You're going to be on your hands and knees for hours hours, days even, picking berries one by one as you crawl around on the cold, soggy ground in the fall. Not a fun scenario and certainly not commercially viable. But cranberry fruits do float, as anyone who's had to prepare fresh cranberries can attest. So farmers started to specifically create cranberry bogs where they could cultivate the plants under their ideal conditions all season, and then they would flood them in fall when the berries were ripe, which would cause them to float to the top and be harvested en masse. Cranberry plants are often associated with large populations of sphagnum, a type of moss that we will almost certainly do an episode on at some point, and a plant that relishes similar conditions. In fact, the presence of sphagnum itself can actually make conditions more favorable for the cranberry plants because they're capable of holding a lot of water and also require the same intensely acidic soil conditions that cranberries do. 
Cranberry fruits themselves are usually eaten by any number of creatures, from slugs to insects to birds and small mammals like opossum and raccoons. So between the fruits and the flowers, these tiny little plants are sustaining quite a few species. Let's move into segment two and talk about the cranberry in culture. The two biggest cultural impacts of the cranberry are food and medicine. But before we get into that, I do want to bring up cranberry's relatively newfound status as a meme, notably the frogs and cranberries it must be fall meme. This dates back to 2014 when Peterson Field Guides, yes, the same company that publishes the field guides, shared a photo of a frog surrounded by floating cranberry fruits initially posted by an extension master gardener account. It was captioned simply, Frog and cranberries, it must be fall. No punctuation aside from a period at the end, that was it. And while it's not necessarily surprising that frogs and cranberries would have a close connection, particularly in fall, when there's an abundance of water around the cranberries, but something about the absurdity of that caption catapulted frogs and cranberries and fall into internet fame. So in fall, if you see this meme popping up, now you know where it came from. The reason that cranberries are as widely used in both food and medicine as they are now is due entirely to North American native people, specifically the Lenni Lenape of New Jersey, the Chippewa, the Narragansett, and the Wampanoag. I am not going to attempt to pronounce each of those languages' words for what we call cranberry, but I will put a link on our website so you can dive more into those words if you are interested. Not surprisingly, the words that different groups of Native Americans use to describe cranberry still lend their names to ponds, streams, and roads throughout the Northeast. From a medicinal standpoint, cranberries most notoriously are sold to treat or help treat urinary tract infections, a directive that's probably more folk wisdom than medical science, since recent research is showing that they may not actually be all that useful in that department, and that there is a potentially life-threatening reaction if you take cranberry with the blood thinner warfarin. But the same polyphenols and flavonoids that can potentially cause these negative interactions also give cranberries plenty of positive use on their own. And recent research has shown promise in treating dental problems like tooth decay. Their antioxidant effect gives them potential in treating age-related neurodegenerative diseases. And conventionally, dating back to the earliest Americans, they've played an integral part in wound healing and managing bacterial infections. Cranberries are naturally very high in vitamins, particularly in vitamin C which as you may know is crucial in protecting against scurvy. Europeans used to bring citrus on sea journeys to defend against scurvy, but citrus in New England is obviously not a sustainable crop choice, so having this alternative was really crucial for survival, especially since cranberries lend themselves so well to being dried for storage. In the US anyway, dried cranberries took the world by storm maybe 15 years ago or so, and have become nearly equal with raisins for snacking, cooking, and baking. But until then, fresh or canned cranberries really were the only game in town. Now, no judgment, but canned cranberries, really? I should say that I get that whatever you grew up eating probably has informed everything that you still like now, but I am team fresh cranberries for the holidays, and I am kind of a cranberry purist, going with one of the two classic recipes, a cooked compote with sugar where the berries are left whole, or the raw cranberry in orange relish. Both of these recipes are typically printed on the actual bag of cranberries that you buy and are great ways to really enjoy the point of including cranberries in a holiday dinner, which is to provide something tart and refreshing against all that rich food. So perfect time to give one of those classic recipes a try and you can still get the can of cranberries, but it's worth considering a actual 
recipe prepared from cranberries that you have lovingly washed and processed yourself. Now, when it comes to Thanksgiving, it's interesting to think that cranberries might be the only menu item that nearly everyone still eats on the day of that actually might have been served to the pilgrims back in the early days. If you're one of those people who think cranberries are an optional part of Thanksgiving, I'd encourage you to give them another try and see if all this history doesn't maybe change your mind about them. So let's talk about growing cranberries. You can absolutely grow cranberries in your home garden, provided that you have acidic soil. If you don't know whether you have acidic soil, you can get a simple pH test at your local garden center or submit a proper soil test to your local cooperative extension where you'll find out your pH and a whole lot more about your soil. But in general, if you're growing rhododendrons and or azaleas successfully, or you're also growing blueberries, you've probably got the right conditions for growing cranberries as well. The soil should ideally not just be on the acid side, but be quite acidic as low as a pH of 4.5, but no higher than about the mid fives. Now, if this soil pH conversation is confusing, just hop over to our website and we'll post a link that spells it all out. Now, let's say you've got acidic soil and you've also got to have a consistent supply of moisture. Remember the obligatory hydrophyte? They need to have some regular supply of water. That means you may have to irrigate your cranberry planting, but it could also mean that you're taking advantage of a naturally high water table or a low spot in your yard, or maybe you have a pond or something like that that you could actually plant up with cranberries. Vaccinium macrocarpin can only be grown in cool to cold climates. It will not do well in very hot areas. Even though it's found as far south as North Carolina, you're not gonna find it in the hottest parts in the south of that state, more like the northern and mountainous portions of North Carolina. If you're within USDA hardiness zones two through six, you should be good to grow cranberries. The plants are very shallow rooted. And so that means they can experience drought and heat stress pretty quickly. It's definitely a good idea to put down a two to three inch layer of shredded bark mulch. I would not recommend mulching with peat moss or sphagnum, even though that's how cranberries grow in the wild. Because what can happen if you use those materials as a mulch is that they get dried out from wind and sun and so forth, and they become hydrophobic. They literally repel water. And that makes it very difficult to re wet that surface area. That ends up preventing water from reaching your plants and it could die. You could definitely grow them in a container if that makes it easier to control the soil pH and moisture. It's not necessarily going to be the most thrilling planted container you've ever seen in your life, aesthetically speaking, but it is useful to consider if you want to try your hand at growing them. Plant cranberries in full sun to part shade. In too much shade, you're unlikely to get good pollination, and eventually you'll see fewer flowers, which means fewer fruits, and the fall color will be lackluster as well. As I said at the beginning of today's episode, cranberry plants have a natural, low, ground-covering habit, and this is indeed how they are best used. If you're working towards an edible landscape, you could, for example, use cranberries as a ground cover around a planting of blueberries. If you had a rock garden, you could try cranberries as a ground cover around the rocks, as in nature, they're often found sprawling across rocky surfaces. Wherever you decide to plant, be sure it's sustainable for the long term, because cranberries are one of those plants that does not transfer plant well. And this isn't uncommon for sprawling ground cover shrubs like cranberry, where they have a lot of different rooting points and their stems are kind of weak. So this isn't one of those situations where I would say, go ahead and plant it, and you can always change your mind later if it's not working out. You're really going to want to do your best to cite your cranberry planting right 
from the get-go. It will probably take two to three years at least for you to harvest your first cranberries. And just being realistic, unless you've planted a lot of cranberry plants, you're probably not gonna get enough to make your own homegrown cranberry sauce. But you can get a few to use to garnish a dish or decorate your table, something that really shows them off. And hey, if you're growing cranberries and drama starts developing around your holiday table, you can always clear the air by offering to take everyone out to see your cranberry planting. Long term, you don't need to worry about pruning cranberries or really doing much of anything aside from keeping the weeds under control, especially as it's trying to get established and the plant is more sparse and it's easier for weeds to take hold. One final word before we go. If you're looking for more information on how to grow cranberries, you'll find a lot of stuff online. But be aware that a lot of it is intended for large-scale cranberry production, not the curiosity of the home gardener. So depending what you find, you want to probably take information from several sources before you decide your best course of action. That's all we've got for cranberries. Don't forget to visit our website, mypwcolorchoices.com, and click on podcasts so you can read today's show notes, see photos of the plants we've discussed, and get links for further research on the many, many topics that we can't cover in the span of a podcast episode. You've been listening to Every Plant Deserves a Podcast, brought to you by Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. I'm Stacey Hervella. Our recording, production, and sound design is done by Adriana Robinson, and our cover art is by Shannon Downey. To learn more about us, what we do, and why we do it, visit provenwinnerscolorchoice.com. You can also contact us there with your own suggestion about which plants we should cover. We hope that you'll find a chance to share a random plant fact with someone new today. Thanks for listening.